0: hello and thank you for listening to the at tapes a podcast from the journal of athletic training The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Elder, and I am the host of the AT Tapes podcast. I am an associate professor and the program director of the athletic training program at the University of Alabama. My research area is on shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at eeelder85. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers, thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. The March issue of JAT is a special issue on work-life balance, and today we will be hosting one of the co-editors and contributing authors, Dr. Christy Eason. She was also a co-author of the NATA Work-Life Balance Position Statement. Welcome to the podcast, Christy.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today.
0: Christy is currently the president of sports safety at the Corey Stringer Research Institute at the University of Connecticut. In addition to these responsibilities, she has a research interest in the work-life interface of athletic trainers and the examination of individual and organizational level factors that impact retention, professional commitment, work-life conflict, and patient care. She's definitely an expert in this area, and we are looking forward to getting some guidance um, from her on this topic and learning a little bit more about the March special issue. So, Christy, before we start talking about work-life balance, um, let's learn a little bit about you. So, can you tell us a little bit about your educational background?
1: Yeah, um, so I am uh, an athletic trainer. I, um, unfortunately, a few years ago aged out of the young professionals, um, but I received my bachelor's degree from the University of Connecticut um, and then my master's degree from James Madison University in nutrition and physical activity. Um, And after that, I took a a few years um, away from education and worked as an athletic trainer in the clinical setting um, before coming back to the University of Connecticut to get my Ph.D. uh, in sport management so why did you become an athletic trainer oh that's a great question when I was in high school I was a recreational athlete um, and I was very fortunate that I had a athletic trainer at my high school and I thought wow this is such a cool job you get to um, watch sporting events and and you get to to travel and meet new people and I think that sort of opened my eye My eyes to what athletic training actually was. And then when I went to school specifically for athletic training, I learned that athletic training was so much more um, than what I initially thought it was. And and I think I was just hooked. I I got the bug. So I was very fortunate that um, I was exposed to an athletic trainer in my high school.
0: So throughout your career, you've had a variety of research experiences or experiences with research and clinical experiences. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in research and specifically this area?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So to be completely honest with you, when I um, stepped foot for the first time in an athletic training class at the University of Connecticut, I was convinced I was going to be the next athletic trainer, um, the head athletic trainer for the Boston Red Sox. And truthfully, um, I worked baseball and it, it wasn't for me. But simultaneously, I had a research methods class my senior year with Dr. Casa, and it really just opened my eyes um, into... Uh, the research world of athletic training. From there, I went on and got my master's degree. And, and I knew in the back of my mind that I eventually wanted to get back to research. Um, I think simultaneously what happened while I was working as an athletic trainer with patients in the collegiate setting, I started experiencing uh, some of my own challenges with maintaining uh, my own work-life balance. So um, whether it It was um, maybe having to miss an event um, with family members or um, feeling frustrated when my work hours changed because practices changed. What was also happening is that I was a preceptor for a local athletic training program. And these athletic training students that were coming and working with us were also telling me that, they weren't interested in being athletic trainers beyond their athletic training education. And for me, that really struck a chord because I don't know um, many other healthcare professionals uh, who have already made up their mind in their education program that that this wasn't for them, right? So why are you going through an education program if if you don't see this profession being sustainable for you? And I was seeing a lot of commonalities, whether it be young girls who thought that they couldn't be a mom and be an athletic trainer, um, whether it was uh, uh, issues with thinking that they weren't going to get paid enough. And so my own experiences with what students were telling me really got me interested in this idea of work-life balance. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to maintain my professional relationship um, with Stephanie Singe, who, who was my... Um, uh, one of my teachers as an undergrad, and she just happens to be, you know, one of the the biggest names in uh, work life balance research and athletic training. And so, I reached out to her, and and sort of, um, you know, that decision was made to go back to school, and 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 I was able to to focus on the work life balance research.
0: Well, as an educator myself, I've definitely had a lot of those conversations with students, and I think that's why it's so. Um, meaningful that the NATA now has the position statement and that there is this special issue in the Journal of Athletic Training uh, because it is an issue for um, students already um, and then Mm -hmm. professionals who've been in the profession a long time. So why don't you, I, I think you know we've kind of already addressed some of the issues related to work-life balance um, just in the introduction, but why don't you give us a little bit of a background on this special issue? So sort of where did this idea come from? How did it come together? And what can readers expect from the content?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was a doctoral student, I was very fortunate that I was able to get involved with the NATA work-life balance position statement. Um, shortly after that was published, the NATA Foundation released their prioritized research agenda. And as part of that, the vitality of the profession specific to work life balance was, was a main component. And so Steph Singh and I had a lot of conversations about, you know, how can our research match with this research agenda? And, and truthfully, all credit goes to her because she had this idea of, well, Let's bring together the, the researchers who are doing this really important work. Um, and so she was actually the one who put forward this idea for the special issue. And I, of course, was um, uh, it didn't take me long to say yes to, to want to to want to jump on board. You know, I, I think for us, the intention of this issue um, was one to highlight the work that that's being done. Um, there's so many great researchers in the field um, who have been doing this research for a long time or who have just gotten started in, in this research. Um, the other thing is that there's a lot of different lenses to look at work-life balance, whether that be from the individual perspective, like me and how it impacts me, or from the organizational perspective, how do the things in my job impact um, uh, work-life balance? And then what is the impact of the clinician's work-life balance on patients? And so we really wanted to be intentional in in bringing all of these concepts together. I think the other thing that's really important to keep in mind with work-life balance is that what I define as work-life balance for me might be different than what you define as work-life balance for you. And so the opportunity to bring all these different voices and ideas and strategies and, and and issues and challenges together in one issue was really intentional because it was it was our goal that at least one of these articles Um, is going to stick out to you as, as you read it. Um, and so, like I said, we were, we were really fortunate through our work to have some connections. Um, and, and it's been really great to, to see, um, all the different, uh, researchers come together. So we have, you know, seasoned veterans like Dr. Bill Pitney, um, who, who wrote an editorial for us. We have, um, a really great article by Dr. Ashley Goodman talking about mindfulness and, and how you can use that concept, um, Dr. Leslie Oglesby talked about how burnout is related to medical errors. So there's, there's just lots of different things um, and constructs that are explored in, in this particular issue.
0: So oftentimes when we're reading journal articles or a journal in entirety, we're really focused on how do we change our patient outcomes? How do we change what we're doing clinically to make a difference in our patient that day? And so this special issue is a little bit different, and this type of article is a little bit different. So can you talk to us a little bit about how this special issue should or could be used um, for the athletic trainer or their employers or their organizations?
1: Yeah, I love this question. I think, one, I am so excited that the Journal of Athletic Training is releasing this particular journal in Athletic Training Month, right? It's all of the articles are specifically focused on the clinician. But I think what's really important to remember is that clinician-work-life balance is going to direct directly impact um, patient outcomes. So we know that um, when clinicians, regardless of if they're athletic trainers or nurses or physicians, that when they have strong, good, supportive environments and they can maintain work-life balance, that they have increased overall health and wellness, decreased burnout and decreased compassion fatigue, and what we're seeing in, in research and in other healthcare fields is that um there's a link between work-life balance and, and patient outcomes. So it's our goal that the articles in this particular uh special issue can be used by the clinician to start developing strategies, but also to recognize that there's nothing selfish about work-life balance um that for you advocating for yourself you're simultaneously advocating for your patient. Um, and I think that's important. And we want to make sure that that message is is really clear. Um, it's also our hope that if you're in a position of leadership and, and you read some of these articles, you'll see um, all of the different things that, that can impact the work-life balance of an athletic trainer. And I'm probably going to sound like a broken record throughout this um, entire episode, but work-life balance is really individualized. And so... You know, oftentimes we we can get criticism of, well, our research doesn't look enough at strategies. And truthfully, strategies are really hard to, to measure and to assess because they're very different for different people. And it's our hope that by reading these articles, athletic trainers will be able to start developing their own strategies. Of course, we offer suggestions, um, you know, but but I think that's our takeaway message that you can develop strategies. There's nothing selfish about work-life balance and having good, strong work-life balance will ultimately impact um, your patient care and your, your ability to deliver that patient care.
0: So, so far today, we've been using the term work-life balance, and I think a lot of the, the research uses that term, but in looking at some of the articles, um, there's people use different terminology, and in my own research, I see some other um, terminology that, that's used besides just work-life balance. So, can you talk a little bit about the terminology and kind of what you think is the, maybe not right, but best way um, to describe this issue that we're focusing on?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I I really do prefer the term work life balance over you might see work family balance or work family conflict. The reason that that we often try to choose to use the word life is because there's a recognition recognition that if you're not a spouse, if if you don't have children, you still have um uh, roles that you play in your non-work life. And so that term, um, work life is, is something that we prefer to use. Now, with that being said, um, you're gonna see work family conflict, um, you know, uh, work family balance. It's really all sort of this, um, uh, similar concept. The other thing that I, I just wanna make, uh, really clear is that When we hear work life balance, I think that there's this automatic assumption that balance means equal. Um, but work life balance doesn't mean that I have to spend the exact same amount of time and energy in my work role as I do in my personal role. It just means that I have to have the energy for both roles. So, Balance doesn't necessarily have to mean an equal split. Um, there's a lot of concepts around, um, on this idea of work-life balance. So you introduced me as, as a researcher who studies the work-life interface. That's really just a broad term for the overlap between your work and your life roles. So that's kind of like the big umbrella term. Work-life balance is when, um, we as an individual have the, um, uh, appropriate time and energy for all of our roles. When we have conflict, that's when we don't have enough energy for one role, and that could be um, not enough energy for work or not enough energy for our life roles. And then. We can also see the term work life enrichment. This is when um, it's sort of like the positive view. This is when the things that I do in my work life has a positive impact on my personal life and, and, and vice versa. So there's a lot of different terms. I personally like work life balance um, because I think it encompasses the roles that we have in, in our in our entire life.
0: So I want to shift a little bit to talking about some of the specific articles that you co-authored within this special issue. And I do also recognize that in in maybe some of these answers, you might pull in some of the other articles or or findings um, from this special issue or your other work. Um, But in one of your articles, you evaluate work addiction and burnout. So can you talk to us a little bit about what work addiction is um, and how you see this impacting burnout?
1: yeah, so I was um reading an article that was published several several years ago um, by a research mentor of i uh, of mine and and they were specifically looking at workaholism as they referred to it um within the sports industry. And truthfully, I had never heard that term before. I'm like, workaholic. what does that mean? Um and so I started looking into it a little bit more and And what work addiction is is it's this preoccupation with your work. Um, and often that's to the detriment of an individual's health and their own personal relationships. And I started thinking about all of the conversations as the qualitative researcher that I've had with athletic trainers over the years. And I started thinking, huh, I wonder where athletic trainers fall on this spectrum of, of work addiction. Um, so so we intentionally surveyed. Um, athletic trainers um, who who were working in clinical practice uh, with patients to see what their risk of of work addiction is so we used um uh the very sexily named WART scale W A R T um the work addiction risk um uh, uh scale to to see if athletic trainers were at risk of work addiction and what we found is the overall sample was at medium risk meaning that um there's a chance that that they're developing work addiction tendencies. Um, What we also found is that the athletic trainers who scored higher for work addiction also had higher rates of burnout, um, meaning that they were probably spending a lot of time at work. Um, Another thing that we found is that um, women scored higher than men on what we call compulsive tendencies. So the women in our sample tended to be more compulsive. And we know that that uh, compulsive tendency is a key dimension that identifies workaholics versus non-workaholics. So, so women um, were showing uh, higher um, compulsive tendencies. So, well, what does that mean? Like, who cares that athletic trainers are workaholics, right? I think for us. And the conversations that I've had is I've often seen athletic trainers or or jobs where athletic trainers are talking about um, how they show up early or they stay late or they'll skip lunch or they miss an event with their family members. And for me, I've always been really curious as to why these are things that we're promoting about our profession. And so for me, I think this paper in particular does two things, right? One, there's a recognition that... This preoccupation with work um, and this desire to always be at work could have potential consequences in your ability to find balance. But I think the second thing is that us as a profession and organizations that we work for, we have to stop um, praising or uh, putting on a pedestal these people who are displaying work addiction tendencies and um, Especially if we don't have then conversations with appropriate compensation. So there's, there's this real link that we're seeing to individuals who want to be at work all the time and then issues related to burnout. And so for me, it was really eye opening, um, to see this. And so of course, we now want to, to explore work addiction, uh, work addiction further and then compare, um, athletic trainers to other healthcare professionals. But I just think, you know, As a profession, we just, we need to stop praising um, these work addiction tendencies.
0: So you've talked a little bit about what does this mean um, and also identified that strategies are really hard to to prescribe, I guess you could say, because they're so individualized. Um, So with that caveat, I'm going to ask you, what strategies are there uh, that athletic trainers can take to mitigate work addiction and burnout?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So so there's lots and and again, um this might not each one might not work for every person, but hopefully something will work for for someone. So I think one thing that could be really helpful um and I'm speaking to the athletic trainers um at first who who have another athletic trainer who works with them and and I'll uh, explain that in a second. But I think outsourcing can be a really important strategy. So you don't have to be the only person to provide care to patients. I think one of the amazing things about athletic trainers is that we develop these amazing relationships with our patients where we get to know them really well. But that doesn't mean that I am the only health care provider at my, at my job that can provide them care. If the soccer team's there and I'm the soccer athletic trainer, I don't even like using that term, but... Uh, that doesn't mean that the football athletic trainer can't provide them with care. If you're an athletic trainer at a high school and you're the only one in that situation, I understand that you are the only one that can provide care, but it doesn't mean that there aren't other job res- uh, responsibilities that you couldn't outsource. Maybe you can have an athletic training student club who can help with field setup, or you can work with your um, athletic administrative um, assistant to help with some of the administrative paperwork that you're dealing with. So, so looking for ways to share the job responsibilities I think the other thing that's really important is that we as athletic trainers need to recognize that it's okay to say no to certain things or to, to set boundaries. So, um, I'm not going to answer my phone, call, my phone after a certain time, or I'm going to make sure that on my day off, I have an away message up on my email so that I can have that separation. Um, of course, you know, there's always the exceptions and, and emergencies will come up, but we can do a better job separating ourselves. I think it's really important to to recognize that you also have to identify your own personal values and and what's important to you. The last thing that I'll say with that um, is that I think athletic trainers can do a better job um, uh, taking advantage of maybe human resource um, initiatives that are available to them. I can't tell you how many athletic trainers I've talked to who've told me that they have vacation time, or they have sick time, but they've never taken that time, right? And I ask them why, and I say, well, it was the playoffs, so I couldn't leave, or um, we were short-staffed, so it wasn't appropriate for, for me to leave. Um, but I think it's important for us to take advantage of those uh, programs that are available to us. Um, everyone else does, and so um, athletic trainers should be able to to do that as well. From the organizational perspective, I think We have to do a better job um, letting athletic trainers know what initiatives are available to them, what they can take advantage of in in their in their jobs. Um, Also creating a a family friendly work culture, you know, whether it's that, um, you know, it's encouraged that I bring my spouse or my dog or my child or whoever, you know, to to an event. Um, Those are all different strategies that that we could take advantage of.
0: So another one of your articles talks about work-family conflict and guilt. Um, mm-hmm. So a, a, de- a little bit of a different spin on some of the things that we've already been talking about. Um, so can you talk about these concepts specifically and how these impact job
1: satisfaction and burnout? Yeah, great question. So so again, this concept of, of guilt, and in this particular case, the reason we use work-family guilt is that... Um, instead of work life guilt is that um uh, the original scale was particularly looking at um family roles um but but guilt um is really this individualized emotion that stems from the individual belief that your behavior is violating your own personal goal. um, And it can create feelings of regret. So for example, um, if I'm an athletic trainer working in clinical practice, and um, I really need to make sure that I leave work at a certain time so that I can make an event, and practice runs late, and now patients are coming in, I feel guilt if I leave those patients and, and I don't feel like I could give them the optimal care or vice versa. I choose to stay and now I feel guilty because I'm missing that family event. So again, this this concept of, of work family guilt is very individualized, but it manifests itself when we have these feelings that I'm not meeting all of my own personal expectations. I can't do everything that I want to do. And because of that, I feel like I'm letting someone else down. Um, a lot of the articles, or I shouldn't say a lot, some of the articles in our um, special issue specifically talk about that from the parental perspective, the, the guilt that, that parents feel, moms and, and dads um but you can experience work life uh, uh work family guilt regardless of your marital or or parental status we also know that individuals who experience work family guilt um that's predictive of work family conflict so the more guilt you feel the more conflict you're also likely to experience and conflict is what directly can lead to burnout um so again understanding that, that these uh, these constructs are, are all connected is is really the goal. Um, and so the same strategies that we talked about just a minute ago would also then apply, um, you know, to help alleviate some of the guilt or alleviate some of the, the work-family conflict um, that, that can arise.
0: So you previously talked about some organizational factors that can positively impact things. And I want to go back to that and ask a little bit, a few more questions on that. Um, because I think that it's important that we realize that this isn't just us. We just, as an individual don't have to solve the problem. Um, mm-hmm. we might need to be advocates in getting that solved or and working within our, our groups, our structures. So can you talk a little bit about how organizational factors impact work, family conflict and guilt and job satisfaction, burnout, all the, all the things
1: yeah, that's a great question. And and before I even jump into that, I'm so glad you asked this, because I think oftentimes the athletic training profession as a whole gets a really bad rep for work-life balance. And, and one thing that Steph and I will say a lot when we have um, the opportunity to to talk is that sometimes it's not the profession, it's the organization that you work for that's that's causing a lot of these issues. So organizational factors are, are things that are built into your job setting or built into your organization that, um, is the same for everyone. And and what I mean by that is how many athletic trainers do you work with, right? Are you only two athletic trainers and you're expected to provide care for, um, seven in-season sports and six out-season sports? Um, it's also having control or not over your own work schedule. So, one thing that can be a little bit unique to athletic training compared to um, some other professions that we look at is that athletic trainers, um, particularly those who are working um, in the collegiate or the high school sports setting, um, have very little control over their own work schedules. Right. So what time does coach say practice is at? Well, that's when I'm going to show up for work or um you know, I was supposed to work uh, baseball on Saturday, but it got rained out. So now we have a doubleheader on Sunday. Um, So those, that lack of control over your work schedule is also um, an organizational factor. Organizational factors also include um, uh, the policies that we had talked about, what policies are available to you. It's also the the, the leaders that you have in your organization, are they supportive of, of work-life balance? Um, and so again, these are things that might be innate to the organization, but aren't specific to, um, the athletic training profession. And one thing we always talk to our young, um, professionals about is how important it is to interview the interviewer right so try to find out as much as you can about um the work-life balance culture of an organization before you start and that if you're really feeling burnt out take a look and see is it my workplace that's causing these issues or is it the athletic training profession many people that that we talk to um you know, talk to us about how much they love working with their athletes and, and how much they love the, the opportunity, um, to do a lot of the skills, uh, associated with being an athletic trainer. But it's the workplace things, um, that are driving them away, uh, driving them away from the profession. Um, so if there's any of you who, uh, who are listening and are in positions of being, um, an administrator in an organization, you have a lot of power over the workplace culture and the work-life balance, um, of your employees. So so, so don't forget that.
0: So back to strategies um, again. So I, I, my last question is really about um, talking about some strategy, strategies for athletic trainers to advocate to their employer, to their organization about work-life balance, about increasing job satisfaction, decreasing burnout of how can they get them to care?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think for me, one thing that's been sort of eye opening for me is that having a conversation is always is always going to be the the first step and having conversations about how work life balance isn't just impacting the individual person but impacting the workplace and so whether that is patient care whether that's the dynamics I think if you talk to your leaders about the overall impact and not just about the impact on you personally I think we've seen that they're that they're more receptive the other thing i find is that Whenever you're going to bring forward something, it's always a good idea to have a strategy. So perfect example, when I was working clinically, um, we were in the overlap of our fall season and the start of winter season. And our women's basketball team, um, the student athletes were primarily nursing students. um, And so they the coach wanted to practice at 10 o'clock at night because. Uh, the girls had just finished their internships. But for us working football and then staying until a game, uh, a practice at 10 o'clock at night, we just couldn't make that work. So we got together, we had a conversation with the coaches and we told them what the issues were going to be, why we were going to be struggling uh, with that. And so they made the decision that they would hold practice at 6 a.m. instead of 10 p.m. and then They could have practice before. Now, for those of you who aren't early birds, maybe you don't love that, but for us, that worked perfectly because then we could have our athletic trainer who needed to be at basketball at basketball practice, and then they were done at two, three o'clock in the afternoon instead of coming in at eight and then staying until midnight. So oftentimes when when you when you have issues, having Ideas for ways to work through them also is going to help someone be more receptive to change. If you're just bringing problems forward, that's when you're likely to, to see more of um, the resistance. Right. So I'd, I'd suggest, um, you know, bring your evidence with you and then also uh, propose strategies as well.
0: So as we finish up this episode today, I'm gonna ask you for some take-home points. Um, So these could be take-home points specifically from your research or the special issue as a whole.
1: Yeah, so I have a couple. Um, The first, like I said, I'm gonna be a broken record about this. Work-life balance is really individualized. And so the most important thing that you can do as an individual is um, identify what's most important to you. Um, We don't expect that uh, work-life balance means equality in all things, but it does mean that you have the energy to do the things that are important to you. Um, the other thing that I think is so important to keep in mind is that advocating for yourself and for work-life balance is not selfish, you and your situation having better work life balance means that you can give better care to your patients or you can be a better educator or you can focus more um, uh, on the things that are important uh, to you that are that's going to make you a, a better citizen. Right. So work life balance. Um, it's not selfish. And there's a direct link between clinician well-being and, and patient outcomes um, the last thing I would say is is that um, for me part of the goal in in this special issue was bringing a lot of different voices together and hopefully, create questions so that other people will, will continue to, to do the research. So I, I hope that we are, we're really stimulating a lot of ideas and, and, and things to look at. And, and, you know, we'd love to look at strategies if, if there's ideas for strategies.
0: Well, Christy, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. And even more, thank you for your work in this area, because it's very needed within our profession. Thanks so much. I hope you all found this podcast informative and are able to use the information for the special issue. That's it for today's The AT Tapes, and we look forward to our episode next month. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us for next month's episode of The AT tapes.